uh, we're going to do what we always do, though, even though we're going to kind of get in God's word a little bit and then do the dedication, and we're going to pray first uh, that God would give us wisdom. So pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the day that, to, that you gave us to uh, breathe again. We're reminded that we are still breathing, Father, and we praise you for that life that you breathe into our lungs. I pray, Father, today that as we have risen with the sun, that we would glorify you um, in the same way, that all your creation, we would join in. And this morning, as we um, prepare our hearts for dedication, but also prepare ourselves to receive your word and consider the things that you would have for us as, a, uh, as your people, the church, the Big C Church, as individuals, that you would uh, do your work in our lives and that you would do, Father, what only you can do, which is cause your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, we, we do not claim any wisdom of man, yet we have given from you to us the very wisdom of God, and so we thank you for that. Would you give us revelation this morning as we enter your word? Would you help us to set our minds and hearts at ease that we could hear you and what you have for us today? We pray you would do this for uh, your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So we're going to start uh, where we left off last week. Now, some of you weren't here last week, and that's okay, but um, we've been in this, a series called Life Together, and we actually just got long, and so we cut the sermon short. So I wanted to pick up where we left off last week, because I think it is important, and it will tie in nicely with what we're doing this morning with dedication. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab it. If you don't, you're, you have a phone. We have open Wi-Fi here. You can get on the, the Bible app as well. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 this morning. Um, and then, like I said, we'll move to dedication. 6 through 10. This is what the word says. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether those things are good or bad. And, and if you were here last night you'll remember, or last week, you'll remember that what we talked about was um, that believing is speaking. Believing is saying the gospel. Some people would think, oh, you can just live the gospel. You don't have to ever say the gospel. But Paul says, because we believe, we speak. We share our faith. It's part of what we do as Christians. And th th this month, uh, we have this month of evangelism, a month of sharing the gospel, or just the good news, or your own experience of Jesus full of questions and answers and wonder and everything that might be in there for you. This is what we're talking about, that we speak what we believe. And then we talked about how we live in the now and the not yet, like we're between times. So we proclaim something that is real and yet will be more real forever, right? So this life is not all there is. And, and, and I wanted to throw in this final point that, that what, what the world gets right and we get right is that we will all be judged, um, that's what Paul says here at the end of that teaching. He says, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him or her for the work they were did in the body, whether it was good or bad work. And I thought it was interesting that the judgment seat of Christ was like this place of, of like being a little higher, right? But I also had this image, I don't know if you have like a stool, but like where you step up, your name is called before the throne of God, for the things that we do while in this tent, in this body. And uh, we talked last week about how none of us are perfect, and yet we will all be judged for our work, right? But there's a second thing that I want to talk about, and this is what we're going to kind of lead into dedication with, 
is that the world kind of gets that, right? It's like, you Christians aren't perfect, and we're like, no, we're not. You guys are sinners, and we're like, yeah, we are. I mean, uh, and all those things. But we believe in Christ who died for us so we can be with God forever, apart from anything we could ever do. And that's the, that's the judgment of God for salvation. So I wanted to make that point before we moved on in the text, right? That we'll be judged for our works as believers in Christ. That means he's gonna say good job or bad, right? But we're gonna be judged for salvation apart from that. Not by our works, but by Christ. And the question will be, do you believe Jesus died for your sins or are you gonna pay for your sins yourself? Because that's what the gospel says. Now, how does this um, tie into dedication? It's like this. The greatest hope we have, I'll speak for myself, the greatest hope I have for my kids and my, great, my grandkids and my great-grandkids and my great-great-grandkids and my quiver of 72 <laughs> is Jesus. That's it. That, that he, in his mercy and grace, would, would save them apart from anything they deserve. And so when we bring our children and our grandchildren before the Lord to dedicate them to the Lord, we're saying, God, you have to do what only you can do in their lives. One uh, reality is that it might seem impossible at times in the thick of life that God could save us, and yet, for those of us who've been saved, we know he does the impossible what we don't deserve, he gives us. We were singing uh, those songs this morning and this, this verse from this song called In Christ Alone Came to Mind. We had babies crying in the back. <laughs> how many heard the babies crying in the back? Listen, how many hear them right now? <laughs> you ought to love that. I mean, we, we ought to love hearing babies cry in church. Praise God. Praise God for that joyful noise, even though they're aching in the body, right? They're, they're crying for a reason. This, this song says this, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That's a big lyric, right? That from the very beginning when you're in the church, you're just crying, your parents are old, you're just like, eh, I don't like it. You know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, it's cold in here. It's hot in here, usually. That God is sovereignly working in our lives. And so with all that kind of being the, the pretext, um, I went to, our, the Comptons and the Horsemans want to share this wonderful video with you. And we're gonna continue this morning in the same word we were preaching, uh, I was preaching before, we're gonna continue now in that same word uh, at this time. If you've not been with us, a few years ago, I think it was like 2019, we covered the book of 1 Corinthians, which we called being the church. And it was like being the people of God together. And, and, and when Paul writes to Corinth what that means, and, and now for several weeks this summer, we've been covering 2 Corinthians, which we've, we've been calling Life Together, uh, because Paul wrote two, actually four letters to the church, based on what we can understand from Scripture, as he tried to continue to encourage them to uh, believe and proclaim the gospel that they started out believing. Um, and the 2 the Corinthians letter starts kind of interestingly and maybe counterintuitively, um, because Paul talks about how everyone has disappointments in life at the beginning of the letter. 
he kind of opens the letter that way, which is a weird place to start. And I think today we're going to get to one of the kind of peaks in the, in, the, in the book of why Paul starts with everyone having a hard time in life. Um, he talked about plans changing. His life hadn't gone how he thought it would go, literally even going to see the church there. And then um, he talked about how we're, we're called to be forgiving people. As the people of God, we, if anyone else, should be forgiving people. And, and that would include Paul with the people in Corinth and Corinth with Paul himself. Uh, talked about being letters from Christ, that we may be the only scripture people read, then how we serve one another. And then last week, we talked about speaking our faith. Serving alone isn't enough, but to actually proclaim why we do what we do. Not proclaim it alone, but with our service. Um, I was thinking about uh, that idea of, of saying the word. And I was, I don't know if you know this, I was raised Roman Catholic, right? And I was actually a, a Roman Catholic altar boy as well, right? So I get the front row seat to the priest stuff. Um, by the way, uh, Duke offered an opportunity for you all to serve. One great way, if you're like me, uh, to um, pay attention during service is to serve. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I couldn't sit still in the pew. We'd always, I would always hit my cousins. They'd hit me, you know, and we'd get in trouble invariably. But we became altar boys and we we screwed around the whole time and never got in trouble for it because we were working. <laughs> so, you know, you get to get up and move. And, uh, but I remember one part of the mass that was always said, it was something like this, um, only say the word and I shall be healed. I think the priest would say that during the mass. Only say the word and I shall be healed. And I was thinking about last week this idea we talked about with saying, speaking our faith, speaking what we believe, but this plea that is said when I was a kid in mass and that we would say now in our lives is like a plea to Jesus. If only you would say the word, we would be healed. It's not saying if we say the word, but if Jesus says the word. You, you know why I, I think that? Because that's what it says in Matthew 8, 8 and Luke 7, 7. You see, there's this guy, a centurion, and he's come to Jesus because he has a servant who's ill, and he loves his servant. And, and he says to Jesus, will you heal my servant? And, and there's some conversation about whether he, he needs to go there or not. And the centurion says, you needn't come. If you would only say the word, my servant will be healed. And, and in the gospel uh, telling of those stories, from that very moment, his servant is healed when Jesus says it. He speaks it. You see, the, the reality, and Jesus himself in that encounter is amazed by the faith of the centurion. He's amazed. As we talk about 2 Corinthians today and, and explore this word, I want you to understand something fundamental about your faith. Your faith influences others. The story I told you from uh, Matthew and Luke is a story of, of, of a centurion who is not part of, um, of Jesus' caste, if you will, or of his people, but he believed, and even that amazed Jesus. His faith influenced others. So we're going to talk about today. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible, then go ahead and let's continue. We're going to pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 5. And we're going to hear this very teaching from Paul to the church, right? So he says, we say our faith, and now listen to this. Verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade 
men. Because what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to you. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is unseen or in the heart. 13, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. So Paul goes right from this idea of speaking our faith to this idea that we're, gonna, we're going to um, influence others. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. So, and by the way, the word fear is phobos. It's the same thing that we get all the phobias that we're using in our language and our culture these days, but it's fear of the Lord. And it's this idea of respecting him above all things, of honoring him above all things, of holding him above everything else. Because if there's anything to be feared in life, it's the Lord. Because of that, then, this is what Paul says, we try to persuade Men. So our speaking isn't just to speaking for the sake of speaking, but it's to influence others. As a matter of fact, the word in the Greek here to persuade men is, is to um, uh, argue or to uh, uh, you know, prod or to encourage or to exhort, right? Uh, to, to get someone to think differently about what this life is really about. And Paul says, because we speak our faith, we want to influence those around us. So the, the reality is that our faith influences others. We try to persuade or influence or encourage. Here's a great word, urge. Urge others by almost any means necessary. I think I told you before, but one time I heard a pastor, and I can't remember who it was exactly, but he said, I will do anything short of sin to share the gospel with somebody. Like, you, you know, there's that song, um, that, that song in David, it comes from uh, um, David's story in, in Kings where he says uh, he's dancing almost naked or naked, depending on how you read the Bible, before the Ark of the Covenant. And, and uh, um, is it Mike, uh, Micah, Michael? His, his wife is offended, like, oh, you embarrassed me, you embarrassed us. And he said, I'll become more unreasonable than this, <laughs> right? That's what... That's what we're, we're going to do whatever it takes to persuade people of the gospel, not to be salacious for the sake of salaciousness, but because there's nothing more important than that others might know Christ. They might come to know the truth of who Jesus is. He goes on to say then that what we are is plain to God and also to you, and I would put in parentheses, I hope. Because this whole letter has been a letter of reconciliation between Paul and the church in Corinth. We're going to get into that later in the book where he's going to go through some of the issues that they've accused him of and his uh, Timothy and Titus as well. But um, he says two things. He says, God knows what we're trying to do. This is like the fourth time I think it's come up in this book that Paul's like, you know, God is our witness. God sees what we're doing. And he's like, God knows us. He sees what's happening in our lives. He knows what we're trying to do. And I hope that you do too. So all these things that Paul and Titus and Timothy have been doing in Corinth have been for the sake 
uh, for the glory of God and the sake of the Corinthian church. And I use the word church not as an organization, but as the group of believers, right? The church in Corinth, those who are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he says these things are plain to God, he means they're not hidden. Matter of fact, they're made clear. Paul wants it to be known. He's going to explain his behavior, what he was trying to do, even when he fails to do it the way he hoped to. And he says, I hope I've made it clear to your conscience as well, your mind, your inner person that you understand. Paul hopes that other believers can see what God is doing in their faith. I think one of the problems we have as, as uh, believers in Christ sometimes is um, we aren't willing to be honest with what's really going on. And, and, and there's a tendency, a, a, a trap, if you will, to try to act like everything's fine. I'm not saying everything can't be fine. If it's fine, great, that's awesome. But most of us live lives that aren't always perfect or even ever perfect. And so there's this idea that making that faith known is a good thing. God knows who we are, and I hope you do too. Paul wants others to see, and if he has to explain it, he will, what God is doing in his life and the life of his disciples in faith. I hope it's clear to you. Now look at this. This is wild, man. There's gonna be some stuff in this book that's gonna be harder for me than this, but this is really interesting um, what Paul says next. He says, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, and that means to kind of step up. You know, it's a letter of recommendation, like I'm gonna put me next to someone else and say, look, I'm as good as they are. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. Uh, where are we at here? But are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And I'm like, what? Paul just said, we want you to be proud of who we are? Like, what is he talking about? What pride does Paul want the church in Corinth to have in him or in Timothy or in Titus? I keep naming those three, by the way, because that's, that's who the letter's from, right? We are writing this letter. What pride does he want them to have? If you've been reading and studying with us, you know that the pride that he has to be referring to here is in the very gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, that if you're going to be prideful of something, what Paul continues to say over and over again is, it's not us, it's him. We are confident in what he has done, what he is able to do. And so therefore, I would say this, it's gospel-oriented pride. Being gospel-oriented, let me say this clearly, as a believer in Christ, being gospel-oriented is a point of boasting, we ought to boast when we're gospel-oriented. Now, that sounds weird. I'm going to try to unpack it for just a second here. But the gospel gives us nothing to boast at in ourselves. <laughs> like, I want us to understand that. That when we proclaim Christ to others, we are not proclaiming ourselves as perfect. As a matter of fact, if I can be really clear, when we proclaim the gospel first to others, we're proclaiming that we are sinners by necessity, because if we aren't sinners, there's no need for the gospel. And so being gospel-oriented means that we say he is great and we aren't so great. I, I get passionate about this because not only do we have a tendency sometimes in the church to pretend, but we have a tendency in the world, and Paul says it here, that they judge based on what is seen rather what's in the heart. We're going to come back to this in a minute, right? But they look at the outside and they go, you're not so perfect, <laughs> 
And we can get defensive about that, you know? Well, I'm trying. No. You know, we're not. Being gospel-oriented as a point of pride means that we proclaim Jesus Christ unapologetically. Funny enough, um, Paul is going to address the issue of pride later. I think it's around 2 Corinthians 10, and he gets kind of snarky about it. But he's, he's kind of treading on thin ice. And so if, if you're around when we get there, it's going to be really interesting to hear his interpretation of pride then. He calls it foolishness. But this gospel-oriented pride is not foolishness at all. And so I wonder, how can you have pride in the gospel for yourself and how can you have pride in the gospel for others? Because Paul's asking not just that, that, you know, that he wants to be proud of what he's doing, but he wants them to be proud of what he's doing. How can you do that? Here's what I think. You can acknowledge, or there's a better word for biblical word, confess your sin. That's where I take pride in the gospel. Because I said phobos, the fear of the Lord, right? There's no fear of man then. If we rightly stand before God as one who knows us intimately, we have no concern to tell others the truth about ourselves. Confessing our sin. Now, I'm not saying we should confess our sin to you know, everyone on the street, everyone we bump into, but there ought to be people in our lives that we are willing to tell the truth about our struggles with, to confess our brokennesses. As a matter of fact, I said acknowledge sin, but we'll say confess sin, and then get this, acknowledge our weaknesses. <laughs> this is like a jujitsu move in faith. <laughs> Someone just says something and you think it's true, you just go, yep, <laughs> like a reed, you know? They throw an accusation at you and you're just like, woo, that's right. <laughs> that's me. You know me. Lest you think I'm being unfair here, Paul says, um, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses if it brings glory to Christ, and it does, because when we are weak, then he is strong. That's what the word says. So we, we acknowledge our sin, we, uh, or we confess our sin, we acknowledge our weakness, and then we just celebrate Jesus. <laughs> like, that's where we go with it, you know? But God, one of my favorite theologians, Corey Adolph, has preached to us many times, and he says, favorite two words in the scripture are, but God. If it were just left with us and our sin and our trying harder to be better, we would have no hope, but God in Jesus Christ has made us whole even while we still struggle. Paul is proud of the gospel, and he wants the church in Corinth to be proud of the gospel. You're going to see this come up because he's going to take apart false gospels that are being proclaimed. The, he says here, too, I want you to see it. This is coming from the word that um, we're not trying to commit ourselves. We want you to take pride in us so that, what's the word say? You can answer those who take pride in what is seen. So there's people who are accusing who is this Paul? Who is this Timothy? Who is this Titus? What do they know? They're not they're better than us. And he's like, no, tell them the gospel. We're, we're not. But Jesus is. Answer their questions with the gospel. Be proud of the gospel when people are making accusations. This is where the church finds its lifeblood in Jesus Christ. There's no other. There's no other way. And so we take pride in the gospel and we use it as our answer to those who take pride in something else or someone else. I want to unpack this just for a second. If people come with an accusation against you, whether it be a brother or sister in Christ, which should come in love and grieving almost, or someone in the world, then we have to wonder, well, what are they counting on? What are they hoping in? What are they believing is ultimately true? 
And, and, and there's, they're taking faith in something or someone besides Jesus Christ. They have to be. Because if they were believing Jesus Christ, they would believe the gospel. They would understand. And so we have an answer to give and a conversation to have with them. Now look at this. He says this, and this is out of the blue for me when I'm reading it. 13, if we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. <laughs> what Paul says there, this is, my, this is a Bill Dempsey interpretation. We get a little crazy for Jesus. That's what he's saying. Look, if we're in our right mind, it's for your sake. He's like, most of the time, we got to dial it back. We got to dial it back to be in polite company. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, this is, what a, a, this is what I think a faith relationship with Jesus is like. It's like you have this inner spring of life that's trying to break out, and you're just trying to hold it back. And people are like, dude, you're crazy. I remember the first time I told my friends I believed in Jesus, that I was joking. They laughed. They're like, that's funny, dude. I'm like, no, I'm serious. That's been like 20 years ago. They're still waiting for me. Like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty serious. <laughs> Because it's something that's happening that's changing me from the inside out. And we're going to talk about that. And, and, um, and so, like I said about David, and I think it's, um, oh, who wrote that song? I'll become uh, more undignified than this, right? You, you, you have to be acceptable. <laughs> you, you can't be too crazy for Jesus around people. Why am I saying that? Be and maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, Bill, nope. Me and Jesus, we're chill at home and we're chill. But man, when you're alone with God, when you're spending time in prayer, when you're talking to the heavenly father who knows you, when you're confessing your sin and, and applying the gospel of his grace, it, it's crazy. And the world doesn't understand that. They can't understand that. That's what he says. They can't see it. We're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. And we're in our right mind, it is for your sake. Why? 14, because Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And when he died for all, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, so Paul's like, we're convinced of this, that Jesus died for everyone, for everyone. He says that we're compelled by Christ's love, that his agape, his perfect love, moves us forward in life. As a matter of fact, the Greek more says it holds us together. And I think Paul means a couple of things. It means, well, like, you know, as I understand it, it means that the love of Christ holds us together when the world is coming but it holds us together. Wait, it holds us, you know what I mean? There's like a global church being held together by the love of Christ through all the fits and starts and struggles that the gospel and Jesus Christ himself are the unifying person. That's it. There's, there's nothing else to rally around except Jesus. And so he holds us together. He compels us. In what ways? First, we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all have died. Um, I, I'll share with you that um, when there's a famous verse in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, we have then John 3.16. 
which says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, whoever believes in him shall not perish, that's be destroyed, but have eternal life. And most of us know that verse. But I want to share with you uh, two more verses that come after it because this is 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That, that God's express purpose in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is telling Nicodemus this, is that by sending his son, he could save the whole world. Save him from what? 18. Whoever believes in him, the son of God, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Why am I sharing that here? Because Paul says to the church, we are convinced that one died for all, all, and all have died. And you can interpret that as like, well, all those who believe in Jesus have died to themselves and have been raised to him, and that's true in this life. But everyone is dead, either dead and raised in Jesus or dead, dead and facing condemnation. That's what John three eighteen says. They stand condemned already. They're walking dead. And so he says, we're convinced that one died for all and all have died, but he doesn't end there, right? He says, and he died for all, now listen to this, that those who live, and that's the resurrection part, right? That those who have been raised to life again should no longer, what, live for themselves, <laughs> but rather for him who died for them and was raised to new life. This interpretation clearly is like, once you know Jesus, you live for Jesus, right? Once you know that you know Jesus your Savior, your whole life belongs to Jesus, and you're not selfish about it anymore. You're not chasing what I want in this life. But there's a funny thing about the gospel. We can interpret that to go, so now I have to be perfect. And it's like, no. <laughs> you have to believe the gospel, which requires you saying you're not perfect. And neither am I. Not even close. He died that we might live for him who died for them. In other words, we're going to live in a way that we're concerned for others. I have a question. How often do you stop and think that Christ died for every single person? There's a car going down the street. Jesus died for people in that car. I don't know who they are. We were up here for the concert on the square Thursday night. There were hundreds of people on the square in Highland to hear Billy Joel. And it wasn't even Billy Joel. <laughs> it was people covering Billy Joel. But it was super good. But you know what? I didn't think that whole night Jesus died for every one of these people. Jesus died for the person selling hot dogs or selling ice cream. Jesus died for the person in the back, you know, running the sound or on the stage and playing the drums. Jesus died for the bartender that was serving drinks at Schlafly. Jesus died for everybody. That's, we're convinced that one died for all, Paul says. Do you think that in your life? Let me make it really personal. What about that person that you struggle with? What about that person that, that you got confrontational with? What about the person that just makes your skin crawl? You just can't stand it. Did Jesus die for them? Ooh. Did Jesus die for that sinner who's like us? The one who died, Paul says, and was raised. Listen now, like they will be, like we will be. The Bible says that all people are going to be raised. 
some to eternal life and some to condemnation, but all are gonna be raised. And some of us will be raised in this life through faith, believing in Jesus. So what does all this mean? Look at what the word says in 16. So from now on, (laughs) Paul's like, here's the line, church. We know the gospel. We know what it says. We know who it's about. And we know it's not about us. So so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. (laughs) The the word in the Greek is flesh. We, We regard no one according to the flesh any longer. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we don't any longer. We don't see people with worldly eyes. We ought not. We don't see them the way the world sees them. What does that look like? I want to go back and just talk through those verses, uh, 12 through 14, 15, with with 16 in mind. So he says, we don't regard them from a worldly point of view. Well, how are they doing that? Um, by, By focusing on what is seen instead of what is in the heart. That's how the world does it. Would you look at those people over there? I can't believe they kissed their mother with that mouth. Well, I've never. Oh, I'm going to go back in my house and close my shutters. Offended by what is seen. Listen now. Instead of what is in the heart. Can we see the heart of people? We don't judge. We don't judge like the world. Can we see their heart? Can we see what's happening inside of them? You know what? And I know this is becoming kind of cliche almost these days because everybody has tattoos, it feels like. But there are still people who are like, tattoos? Why? That's gross. Piercings. And I'm not saying because I have a piercing because I don't even think about it. But, you know, like all the rings. <laughs> not just, you know, the, the regular rings. Oh. Or, or how about this? Um, they have a funny hair color. What's going on with their hair coloring? Right? They smell bad. Have you ever had somebody walk up to you that's really not clean? Like, like really not clean. Like you're in a bad porta potty standing by them unclean. Have you ever had that? And you just want to go, uh, in that moment, do you like Jesus? <laughs> Jesus die for this person. I remember one time I was doing a camp with a dear, dear friend of mine, and we talked about how people's breath smells. And, and it's like, how about bad breath? You're like, oh, well, I get it. You want a mint? Can I help you out? You know? Or do you lean in and go, wow, yeah, Jesus died for all of us. We don't judge like the world judges. We judge like Jesus. He sees the heart. If you look at his ministry, he sees our hearts. He knows what's happening inside of us, good and bad. And so we don't judge that way. By the way, lest I be too unfair, um, we don't judge people who are awkward. Be awkward. How about this? We don't judge people who wear khakis. I'm not sure if anybody's wearing khakis today. <laughs> That's a hard one for me. Or a suit and tie to work. Jesus still loves you. It's okay. No, there's just all kinds of ways that we judge one another. But not the church. No. Here's another thing. He says, if we're out of our mind, it's for God, and if we're in our right mind, it's for you. That means if we're saying things that seem crazy to the world, it's for the glory of God, and if we're, if we're trying to articulate it in a reasonable way, we're probably trying to do that for your sake. You know, something came to mind for me about this, and it's kind of tied in with the dedication today and, and stuff, but the world is, has, the world's insane. Just to put it plainly, 
I was thinking about this issue of us celebrating life and celebrating children. And it seems to me that it's, it, it's intimately reasonable that if you believe that God made each person uniquely, Psalm says, knit them together in their mother's womb, then it would be obvious that we'd celebrate life. And yet there are some who say, no, we celebrate choice. Listen, I'm not judging that. I'm saying like, if we're, if we're, if we're sane, it's, it's trying to have a reasonable conversation about something so unreasonable. To kill a child, it's unreasonable. But if we're insane, it's for God. The, 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 it's like all, all the things are flipped upside down. And it's, and it's not to, do, to be confrontational, but it's to be loving, to be truth-tellers. Here's the, here's the third then. Those who are hopeless, for Christ's love compels us that he died for all. I've asked you this question repeatedly, but who is hopeless in this life beyond hope versus who can we continue to have hope for as believers in the gospel? There's no one. I don't care who they are, if they're still breathing, there's no one beyond the hope of Jesus Christ. There's not a person in the world. Amen. Not one. How often do we act like there is? So we have it. Paul says this then. We once regarded even Jesus in this way from a worldly point of view, in the flesh only, but we don't do so any longer. Why is that? Because we have seen the one who is revealed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who gives new birth and new life. We have seen him. Not they have seen him. We know him. And Paul says, because we know him in this way, we don't see him as that human teacher, that good guy, that nice rabbi, but we see him as Savior and Lord. He saves all people. He's trying to save all the people. 17 then, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, or she. The old has come, and the new is gone. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. The last thing I want to leave you with is this. Anyone can be new in Jesus. Anyone can be new in Christ. Paul says it here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And he says this really interesting thing. He says, the old has gone. It means it's been laid aside. Whatever is in the past is in the past. Whatever sin is committed has been committed. Whatever the, the burdens that are carried have been carried before are not carried now. And the new, they say, Paul says, have come. And the word there has been born. The new, it's, it's uh, um, uh, Genomai or something, it's like the coming into life, the coming into light. I wonder, do you need to let go of the past? Just let it go and have new life. Here it says that anyone can be new in Jesus Christ. There's not a person and no one, no timetable is too late. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I want to go back and touch an issue that's so hard. We talk about celebrating life 
and grieving death. But we know that God works in and through um, people who have done sinful things, including abortion, but not just abortion, for their redemption. That he is not shocked or surprised. And as a matter of fact, he's saving us in spite of our sin. That he continues to work because all can be made new. The old passes away. The new is given birth in our life. And all of it, he says in 18, is from God. Look at what Paul says. Who reconciles us first to himself and then gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That means that he's called us, church, to go be reconcilers in the world. You and me. In our real life, whatever we do, we're called to be reconcilers. To be for sinners, right? For them, not against them. To be for the gospel. He says here that he's been given us a ministry of reconciliation. Listen to what the word says. Uh, in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's the ministry of service we've given them. That we were given a ministry in Christ and to not count people's sins against them. That's crazy that's right there in the text. And he has committed to us not just the ministry, that's the service, but the message of reconciliation, and that's the gospel. But lest we miss it, all this is from God, verse 18, who reconciled us. You see, Paul never starts with like, I'm better than you. He's like, he's done it for us, and so we want to do it for others, and that's what we're trying to do. The great healer the great hope giver, the eternal God, the one who never quits, the one who can't be beat, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, that we might be free. You and I, sinners, though we are, might be free. That's the gospel that we have to fight for in the world. We are, therefore, in 20, Christ's ambassadors, as though God himself were making his appeal through us. And look at this word. It says, so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who was no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. You know what Paul says there when he's writing? We implore you. He's like, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to believe the gospel. I'm not demanding that you do it. Just be reconciled to God. I'm begging you to come home. Why? Because God loves you. God loves all of us. He just wants us to come home. God made him who was no, had no sin, Jesus, to become sin on the cross that you and I, church, and anyone else in the world who would believe in him might be the very righteousness of God. And that is what we're called to influence the world with. Pray with me, if you will. Father God, we thank you so much for the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that saved sinners like us. Father, that saves sinners like us. And Lord, if we're here today and we believe the gospel for a long time, but we've become cynical, we've become kind of jaded or, or hard-hearted, and we're like, oh, we're just so, you know, in the world. And would you restore us? Would you give us a renewed spirit, your Holy Spirit, of a sensitivity toward your gospel mission in the world, that we'd have eyes eyes to see and ears to hear that the work that you're doing is far beyond what we could imagine or hope for. That while we're going through our daily life with people, your hope is that they might come to know you. Oh Lord, would you help us to be uh, effective influencers in this world? 
And Lord, when we're not, and we know we often fail at this, uh, that, that in the failure we would still confess the gospel, that we would say, yeah, Jesus died for sinners like us. May we never put ourselves on the righteous side away from sinners that are being redeemed, but rather on the right side of sinners being fully redeemed in your blood. And Lord, if there's someone here today that thinks, well, yeah, that, that thing hurts too bad or that sin's too egregious, whatever it is, Father, I don't pretend to list an order of sins as if any sin that I've committed is not completely unacceptable in light of your cross. Father, that, uh, oh, that you would minister to us in our heartaches, in our hurts, in our, our sinfulness, that you would do what only you can do in full restoration for the namesake of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you have your spirit come and minister to us now? And Lord, as we uh, continue to celebrate and learn and grow in this life together, help us to be faithful followers of him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.